Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast, the Mid World Cup Molecast. Abrigato gozaimas. Konnichiwa. Let's cut to the chase. The reason we're all having a very anxious time about this uh, group stage is that we've lost to Japan. You two boys were at the match. How did we lose to Japan? I would pin the ebb and flow of psychological energy to um, we, we got a scrum penalty early on uh, we held the ball in and uh, Hugo turned around to me and he goes Tyke Furlong was in trouble there and the penalty was given over on Keane Healy's side which is the side that Gardner was on and at that stage I was thinking to myself I hope we don't keep doing this because I don't think this is going to be a profitable tactic now we, we, can, we can feel them out and it's one of the things that when your captain is in the front five, uh, they'll often go out with this idea that we're going to dominate them and they're going to be very reluctant. They're not like they're not going to give it up. This is Paul O'Connell taking the scrum penalty against Leicester rather than taking the three points uh, for Munster's first loss in Thoman Park. Like this, this is exactly the same situation. And Rory Best is the captain. So Conor Murray, as the senior partner of the halfbacks, has to overrule uh, the next time around and just go, yeah, yeah, right, whatever you think, lads, I want the ball quick as possible and the moment that that match completely changed was a 12-3 Ireland went for exactly the same thing and uh Ty Furlong got in trouble again we got sort of we started to go backwards and Gardner penalized us and from then on we lost we lost that scrum we lost two more lineouts and Gary Ringrose didn't really touch the ball anymore but like from from a Japanese point of view it was like a sumo it was like it was it was one pack against the other pack. It was a it was a collision. It was like a very physical contest, and the belief that their crowd got is impossible to explain. To like TV captures it, I'd imagine to a degree, mm. but, but not adequately. Like the Acopa Stadium reminded me of of Parc de Prince in terms of. Well, like, you know, the way it was a built. graveyard of Irish hopes. Yeah, yeah. Based on we always lose. Um, although we won there two years ago. So um, in that, like the acoustics, the noise coming out, and it was it was one of the classic. Like I, I realized I'll never be. I'm not on Instagram. Uh, I, I gave up social media after and WhatsApp after saying I was giving up after Twitter, and. I took a bite out of every single meal that I had, and then I went, oh, yeah, shit, I better take a, take a photo of this so I can explain how gorgeous this one was. And after the Japanese national anthem was played, I went, oh, man, like, why didn't I record that with my phone? Uh, it, was, it was haunting because it's not like every single other national anthem, which is kind of, you know, to, to more or less extent, like bumpy and drumsy and... Uh, brassy. Brassy. Um, Japanese national anthem is, is very solemn, very oriental, and quite haunting uh, when it's when it's sung by fifty thousand people or forty five thousand people in, in a language that you haven't a clue. Apart from thanks very much, and 
the atmosphere in the ground once the Japanese had won that scrum penalty, I think like, people keep on going on about the humidity. The first half was hot. The second half, you couldn't have chosen better conditions to play rugby in, quite genuinely. And like the lads are talking about training in bin bags, and you sort of think, for all the sports science that they have, they're still training in bin bags. Which, like, how long ago were fellas training in bin bags? Like 40 years ago. So, not that it's wrong, but it's... We were close to pitch side. We weren't at pitch side. But I, I can't buy... Like, if, if Ireland were that unfit... It's an absolute travesty from from Cameron. I think what happened to Ireland was that they were not tuned in for a match of that magnitude. Mm. And when the wave hit, the the house was made of straw or wood. When the big bad wolf came and blew it down, and it was, it was only a matter of time. Like they just Ireland didn't have reserves that they could go into, and they were just they were cowed by a nation. That that was that was my feeling at it, and. I think the leadership team of Schmidt, Bess, Murray have to take the responsibility for the loss. Because when Ireland had the ball in the first oh, like 25, 25 minutes, minutes dom- dominating possession, sorry, dominating territory rather than possession, and like just and getting the ball to Gary Ringrose 30 to 40 meters. And every time Ringrose touched the ball, something good happened. Every single time. Like even when he was like pawing it back. Ireland scoring tries off. Like he was making breaks. He was connecting with people. Um, and Ireland's game plan is very much predicated on attacking in that last third. Uh, and couldn't get into the last third. But couldn't get into the last third because it couldn't get any set-piece possession. And as the scoreboard ticked over then, the Japanese crowd started to get into it and started to really believe they could win. And they didn't expect to win before the match. No, they not knew all. that Ireland were the, the number one team in the world and that like Japan shouldn't like, you know, Japan aren't that good. As far as they're concerned, like they're they're not good enough to beat the number one team in the world. It's also maybe not hard to stress, but the All Blacks get a huge amount of airtime over there. The All Blacks get more airtime over there in terms of promoting the game than the Japanese rugby team did. Like, in, in, if you added up every other team in the World Cup, they'd still be minor partners to the covers that the All Blacks get. So, like, if you're number one, number one in the world, you must be better than the All Blacks in Japanese psyche, and like they don't expect to beat the All Blacks. So that that sort of combination of factors, but primarily like set piece balls and up the set piece was where the match was lost. What's yeah. your take on it? I, I agree. There was this huge, was a, the atmosphere was incredible. Um, not, not a raucous atmosphere, but electric. Uh, and there was, I, I felt in the second half, I sort of felt a bit early. That I was like, oh, the upset's on maybe after. You know, and that's not too early to say that. They came back towards the end of the first half scoring penalties but about 10 minutes into the second half was they were just winning so many contacts uh, and they were tackling so much and they were getting thrown so many people into rocks they were men possessed and there was a, it was like uh it seemed at that stage that no matter what we did as well we were getting on the wrong side of the referee uh, which has a part to play there's I don't think you can avoid that if you're going to talk 
frankly about the game. Uh, <clears throat> there was there was a disparity in interpretations between how he was referring the two sides. But there was also the the part that Japan sort of earned that by being so quick over the ground, so quick to close distance, so abrasive when they entered rooks, and so uh, accurate when they went into two-man tackles. So, this, And this is becoming quickly the motto, as well as our terrible predictions. This is quickly becoming the motto, certainly my bit, is that the team going forward in rugby gets the decisions. And when you couple that with being the host nation in an incredibly atmospheric stadium, and you're going forward, and you're playing electric rugby. Ireland were getting decisions in the first 25 minutes as like the big team. Not outrageous decisions. And like there was one where in particular where the Japanese guy came in the side of the rock and I was there going, is he not going to blow that? But he didn't blow that, but you're playing the home team. So giving, I really thought that we gave us, we gave a sucker an even break with our sort of approach because once that momentum started up and you you were saying 10 minutes into the into the second half like i was sending people texts at halftime to sort of give them an update going look if, if we win set pieces and we don't kick the ball too far so that we can compete in the air and we have to be able to compete um we'll be fine but if not if, if either of those two things go or both of them uh they have a lot of momentum um, and it was and it was apparent that the momentum was coming in. So like we were talking immediately after the match, and there was something I think Murray Kinsler talked about it in his um, his article analyzing the reasons for the defeat. Like I couldn't get over why we didn't put up contestables for Rob Carney and for Stockdale. Jacob Stockdale. Like Rob Carney's brilliant in the air. It's 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 one of his great strengths. And uh, Jacob Stockdale is like six foot four. He's also good in the air. And like Japan aren't. Like Any time we kicked the Japan in the air and contested it, it was it was kind of panic stations for them. Like it's not a strength. We never did it. We just kept on doing the same thing. And you're going like, and with Connor Murray, who's the senior partner playing a halfback, who's a brilliant box kicker. Like I, I can't believe we're not doing that. And even that, I was like, you got to have more than plan A. And again, I went back to Bestie and I looked at the articles and I had to go back two World Cups to the, the report card that I wrote in 2011. And Bestie was the one who said it was disappointing in the Wales match that we couldn't think on the run of a way to come up with it. And you go, eight years later, man, as captain, you have to think on the run. You, you've got to sort of go, we're being absolutely smashed by two or three guys off every rook why don't we put up contestables and take that away from them? That's a strength of theirs. This is a strength of ours. This is a different game plan. We didn't do it. That's leadership. Like you, you got to make those calls. Yeah, I don't think it's just down to Bessie. I think you've made the point there that uh, Conor Murray's the senior partner of the halfbacks. Jack Carty's in his first season at test level. Um, and, you know, I thought Jack played really well in the first half. Uh, you know, things sort of w went against him a little bit in the second half, but I'm cognizant of the fact that he's our he's our third choice out half. You know, it's a big game to be playing in in your first season of of Test rugby when you're not. It's not like he is a sort of Freddie Michalak in in 2007 exploding into the Test team. He's there as Ireland's third choice out half. You know, one of the sort of the last lads in the squad to be picked. So I think he 
they had a good first half. I think he struggled a little bit in the second half. But I don't think his very senior halfback partner took enough pressure off him. You get Cardi came over to see his family after the match. They were like we had awesome seats, and his 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 folks walked down, you know, on our left, and they were sort of hanging over, and he looked shattered. Yeah, walking poor fellow. He looked shattered walking across the pitch, and um, you know, his, his folks, his friends were obviously giving him encouragement and giving. You know, thumbs up and listen to what he had to say and all that sort of stuff. But you really sort of felt we were lucky. The week beforehand, we went to France, Argentina. We we're in Tokyo Stadium. Um, so these are sort—I of, don't know if they're municipal. I don't know what the owners like municipal grounds, but like they're they're, they're multi-purpose grounds. So you can use them for football, use them for athletics. So you're quite far away from the the pitch. But what struck me was this is enormous. Like this isn't just some sort of ah, we'll see how it goes test match and it's a bit it's an opportunity to blood guys and experience this is the World Cup. This is why you blood guys. Like this is a knockout match. These guys are in the same pool as England, who are second favourites. Like this is essentially a knockout match to see who goes through. Like whoever loses this match is more than likely gonna go home. And it was the realization, like just this is it. Like there's one of these every four years. And yeah. Like this is this is kind of what defines you as a great player is you know can you produce at a big moment? Um, so the only reason I bring that up is, is like this is the same for everyone. The, like the World Cups are huge, and I probably didn't appreciate it as much until being at that match when I wasn't like I wasn't like I had no emotional involvement mm. in the teams. I was just there going, oh, this would be really good to watch. It's great match, and you're so far away from home, and you're surrounded by. Like there was people from Canada on your right, people from France on my left, people from Japan directly in front of us. Mm. You're you're surrounded by North American, European, Asian. Yeah, like it is. Uh, like it's and you're you're thousands and thousands of miles away from home, and you're going, "Wow, this is a big world event being watched by loads of people." This is why people have trained for four years. If, if they were asked if they could be in any squad over the last four years, the best players in their country, this is the one they'd want to be in, the World Cup squad, rather than a, a Six Nations squad or a Tour de New Zealand mm. or Tour de South Africa, I want to be in the World Cup squad. So it's a huge event. And, um, you know, we went uh, through circumstances, essentially, uh, really beyond the coach's control. We went into that game with... Uh, a nine who has loads of caps, uh, a 10 who has single figures caps, and a 12 who has single figures caps. So there was a, <clears throat> there was this sort of the knuckle of, of uh, midfield didn't, it's not that they played badly, uh, you know. But there was a lack of ability to change the game in the second half when things are going out. So to change it sufficiently in terms of our approach that we would negate what Japan were doing to us, negate those double hits and our runners close to the rocks, negate them flooding in you know, to the rock from all angles and really putting us under pressure, turn it into a different style of game, maybe a game. And it's, it's difficult because our set piece, our, our line out, had two bad malfunctions. Oh, yeah. Um, and this was something I, I felt when the fixture was announced, like donkeys 
months and months and months ago, I felt that this was going to be a game where Dev Toner, like that Dev Toner and Peter Manny would play together. And it would be a case of you take this set piece away from Japan and you can actually play line it to line it as Joe Schmidt did uh, in his first Six Nations game in charge against Wales. If you remember that in 2014, they picked Coombs and Alan Wynne Jones in the second row. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. They had a very short second row at that time. And we picked O'Connell and Toner and just dominated their line out. We didn't mind if we kicked the ball out because we could get up and spoil on theirs. Uh, and I felt that this was, if for no other reason, I felt that Def Toner was going to be in the squad and, the, and in, in this one, in the starting 15, that we'd actually play a safety first game, kick the ball off the pitch, kick contestables, just kick the ball all the time. But our line-out didn't work well. Uh, it wasn't a complete and utter shambles. Like we lost two bad ones out of, I think, 12 or something like that, but it wasn't reliable. And it wasn't something that we could take away from Japan. We couldn't take their scrum away. And as a result, there was more or less set piece parity, which. When you're getting screwed by the ref, doesn't leave you with much. Well, when you're, when you're second in emotional energy, that's going to be a one score loss. Yeah. And we talk, like, we, we talk personally about your biases and the way like you hear somebody say something that you agree with and you go, oh, that's a, that's a good, good argument. That's a very good point. Very strong argument. Um, very logical that person. And how, how you go back to the, the things that you thought. But I mean, certainly, and we discussed it in, was it our last podcast, second last podcast? Um, about about the, the squad selection and Toner not being picked and said that if there's an occasion, if there's a match where the line-out malfunctions, you have to go back and query, and Ireland lose, you have to go back and query why wasn't Toner in the squad. Well, I have another. The other thing that surprised me was that Jack Conan was going to start this one ahead of Peter, well, Peter O'Mahony. So we would have gone in without our two best, obviously Toner was omitted, but we would have gone into this one without O'Mahony at six as well. Uh, it would have been standard six and, and Conan at eight. Yeah. I feel that the sort of obvious game plan might have been seen as being too obvious and, and overlooked, you know, cause, because neither of those players can compete with O'Mahony as a, as a line player. He's an outstanding line player. And I, I thought O'Mahony played pretty well in that game. Yeah, I thought it was one of his better matches. I actually yeah. think that when he's, I think Omani often plays better when he's been dropped. Um, he obviously got man of the match against England when he came in for Heaslip. Uh, he played w really well down in Australia when Ty Byrne had been brought down as a sort of, you know, competition as number six. Mm. And then he played he played, he played well against Japan when uh, when Jack Cohen had been picked ahead of him. And, I mean, that's at the... Oftentimes, I don't think he plays particularly well. I don't think he's particularly involved for the position that he plays in. Um, but yeah, sometimes so. I, I think he's getting criticised now um, for the last two games. And I'm just like, um, don't see it. No, he, he played pretty well in yeah. both. Yeah, I don't, I don't see it. I think he's playing. I think he's playing pretty well. I think that. I don't even think Ireland played super badly against Japan. I don't think we played particularly intelligently. But I've seen us play worse than that. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't believe how strong Japan were. And I mean, just in the 
individual to individual basis. I couldn't believe that they could they had so many guys who were that strong. They were obviously psyched up massively. I thought, <clears throat> and I think this is an unpopular opinion. I thought we were fucked by the ref throughout the game. I thought we were the first team that anyone could find being offside um, in the middle of the park, giving them easy penalties. And I thought there was a call at the end where uh, Labashagni was standing over the ball, not getting out of the way. Mm. That was akin to uh, the, uh, what was the one that Craig Joubert didn't give in the 2011 final? Kano. Yeah, the one where he's just looking at it going like, Ugh, yeah, I just can't, really can't bring myself to give that, so play on. And I thought it was a, it was, it was a 12-all. It was absolutely, hugely crucial moment. That said, some of the kicks we did in the second half where we punted it long and aimless, let them into run back the middle, yeah. and turn the game into like wacky races. It was just like, this is the last, a couple, last of, couple of players were guilty of that actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but Rob Carney did Rob, it. Yeah. Jack Carney did it and someone else did it. But it turned the game into this absolute, just like crapshoot. And it's going like, when you're losing like a psychic battle like that, that is the last thing you want to do. And especially when you're a team like us mm. and you want, it, you, want, you want the game to be really structured turning it into that kind of game where you have these like 40 meters of the pitch one way, 40 meters of the pitch the other way, 40 meters back up the pitch the first way in conditions that you're not used to. I was just like, how are you letting yourself get sucked into this? Yeah. And then like I say, I wasn't particularly impressed by Jack Cardi. I thought Joey Carby came on. He played even worse. He's oh, just like, Carby. Joey Carby just running, running and being at the bottom of rooks when we need, when we need it to build a score was, it frustrated the hell out of me. Yeah. Carberry hasn't played in an awful long time. Like he hadn't played since played for half an hour against Italy at the first warm up, and then previous to that, it was the semi final against Leinster. Uh, so he's you know played two games in five months, and yeah, he he was he was distinct disimprovement from uh, from Carty, but. Uh, when when they scored their try, there were still 19 minutes left. And when I expected us to get back in the game, get a score, the conversion was an excellent kick, made it much more difficult for us. But um, yeah, we were very disappointing in the in the last 19, 20 didn't minutes. Didn't feel like there was 19 minutes left. Felt like there was eight minutes left. Yeah, I'm right though. I'm not. Isn't it quite a long time left? Uh, I have yeah, to say, I from I certainly I, thought we'd get another. I thought I certainly thought we'd give ourselves an opportunity to get yeah. within four, yeah, um, and make it. You know that we could we could score a try next and, and win it, and yeah. it wouldn't depend on the kick. And it meant that even if they got another penalty, we were still bonus points mm. and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I have to say, uh, the game was gone. That the game was. Well, I suppose 55. there's a second thing that happened as well. Is that picked up another injury. So we ended up with a very disjointed back line with Luke McGrath playing on the left yeah, wing and yeah. Garmer playing 13. And that then you're really down to a moment of individual brilliance to score because like that's that's not a back line. Yeah. That's no. just uh that's a casualty ward. I hope not Bill, that's a maternity <laughs> ward. <laughs> hope not Bill, that's in Scotland. <laughs> Some of the fans not happy with that. The cloud didn't like that. Moving on, um, I spent the minutes from like 40 on the clock to 60 on the clock screaming at the TV in my apartment, stop dropping the fucking ball as Ireland laboured past Russia. Joe came out afterwards, he said there was a lot of things that went right, difficult conditions, blah, blah, blah. I kind of thought that was straight batting. Johnny Sexton did a, like, Predators punch, uh, 
Captain of Ireland for the first time, remarkable straight bat job as well. And then I think Peter O'Mahony came out and did one as well. And I was like, are they all, did I watch a different game? Um, and then I think he mentioned to me yesterday that there was a lot of good things in the first 35 minutes. Yeah, I thought, because I was in, I was out in sight when you, uh, so I read your, your tweets at, at half time, or not half time, I say half time, lunch. And uh, I was like, oh, Jesus, I'm not even looking forward to watching this game now. So then when I got back, I watched the recording of it in the evening. And uh, I was like, oh, this is, this is much better than I thought it would be. And um, for the first half an hour, I thought, like, that was a pretty tidy performance. And, like, we then went to shit. But a lot of that was it seems to have been a handling errors, you know, um, which stop any team getting momentum. Uh, I felt though in the, I felt in the first half while Sexton was on the pitch that we looked, uh, we looked like we were playing with intent, that we were playing with a degree of, um, uh, I suppose just, uh, not devil may care, but a degree of bravery in how we attacked. You know, I, I felt that Sexton kicking one cross kick and then getting the penalty and kicking the other cross kick. I thought that was that was quite he who dares wins. Um, and then I, you know, when when Sexton goes off at half time with the game is wrapped up, but not the bonus point yet. Uh, then I felt that we began to struggle. Uh, just because Saxon is a ten-year veteran who is world, the world player of the year, best player has, in the world, has started five lines tests, and Jack Carty has started. That was his like ninth match, and he's only had two starts. And there's there's this huge, huge disparity between the two players uh, in terms of how much control they can exert on a game. I, I thought that the Russian net half had a weird quirk. Whenever he kicked the ball, he'd drop his head down and he look at his boot. shit out of but it. But the man could kick the ball. And much like England did to us, it's quite, um, I think it was Matt Williams. I'm pretty sure it was Matt Williams saying, he, he quoted John Mitchell saying, oh, Ireland's attack bores the shit out of you. And we talked about England's attack after England hammered the shit out of us and just saying, like, no, no, they bored the crap out of us. Like, I mean, they brought on the gilets jaunes at every single opportunity. They slowed down the match, and they had three guys across the back line who could kick the ball very well. And they just kept on kicking it behind us and, and making Rob Henshaw run around the backfield, Robbie Henshaw run around the backfield. And I thought that the Russian guy kicked, the Russian out half kicked really, really well. And mm. I, I think it was... It was a very good tactic to employ against Ireland in the same vein that when Ireland played against Japan, if we can't get a territorial foothold, like it's, we're not Australia. You look at Australia play against Wales and it's quick rook, quick rook, quick rook and the way they run the ball, the straight lines and they can bury it up. Like their first choice at half goes off and they bring on a guy who arguably is as good. He just does different things. I don't even think it's arguable. Like, I mean, geez, he could be their third choice out of half. He is like, their third I mean, choice out of half. You know, say that Foley, based on being picked for that match, is one. How much is between him and Lele Afano, who beat the All Blacks this year, and Tamua? Like, 
how much really genuinely yeah. like I mean it, it's it's a horses for courses and situation. then they can bring on Curtly Beale and they can bring on Curtly Beale who's played out half of it before yeah so we don't have a squad like Ireland don't have a squad like that and if you pin Ireland back and, and kick us into our own half that team struggles because like Joe Schmidt like it's it's meat, meat grinder rugby is designed to punish teams in the in their 22 but like we're not going to put it's really difficult to put together a string like it's, it's just hard it's hard to do it anyway like I mean for all it's curious you know people see different things we met a we met a very well-traveled prominent figure in the game traveling back won't say who but you know an Aussie guy and he was saying oh you know didn't think we should have kicked that three thought you know we should have put the foot down and played it and all that sort of stuff and I was there going funny I definitely would have taken the three yeah and I'd have sort of thought that okay the penalty went straight at a bad time in the, in that or, or that anyway but um because the set pieces in inability like Tamu makes a brilliant run when he comes on because he, he's different to defend against what Bernard Foley was doing but he didn't keep on doing that. Like, I mean, the more Australia attacked, the more Wales were kind of going, we're well able to defend closer and closer and closer. So you got to, you know, you got to play the opposition here. So different match we're talking about. But like from, from Ireland's point of view, um, you can see the disparity. And it's the stuff we talked about beforehand. You're going, our front five is good. Our back row, you don't know what the best one is. And if our halfbacks are fit and play the way they can, we can do well in this. But like Sexton and Murray are our two best players, our two most influential players. I think James Ryan is our best player. But Sexton and Murray are so much better than the next and they're so good anyway that Ireland need the two of them to be playing really well for anything really good to happen. Yeah. And that's like, that's not a shock. <laughs> Everyone, like, we were talking about that before going over. It's bloody obvious, you know, like... And the... the thing which I found I haven't really reconciled in my head is I, I thought Conor Murray played extremely well against Scotland yeah. and then extremely averagely against Japan um, and I was delighted to see him play so well against Scotland because he hasn't played well in 2019 um, and I thought Jesus Murray's back to his best this is great and then uh and then against uh, against Japan, it was like, you know, 98 passes. So we played a lot off nine, um, both in terms... Well, we played a lot of one out. We played, giving the ball a lot to a very inexperienced 10 and, and then trucking it up an awful lot. Chris Farrell trucked it up an awful lot at, at 12. I think Farrell... Only had two passes for the whole game. And so, he, he was he was told not to, he was told yeah to no because every every time he got the ball he just talked he was just told crash yeah and I, you know some of this is just you you see something and then um, like we saw how how well and how effective Ringrose was in the first twenty five minutes especially but Earls also played pretty well I thought mm. um, Jacob Stockton didn't really get into the game that much. Uh, but it was a. I, I felt that there was just this inability to change the game, which I can understand with inexperienced players like Farrell playing a little out of position. 
uh, Carthy not having a, a huge amount of experience, but I just don't understand why Conor Murray didn't take the game more by the scruff of the, of the neck against Japan. Now, sorry, we're talking about normally talking about Russia and, and where the game went wrong in in the the third quarter. A, a lot of that, like Jesus, a lot of that was handling errors, and it seemed. Like poor Bundyaki just seemed to have tits for hands, and that, oh, in that I, th- I think when he dropped that up, that high one, like on the left hand of the pitch, about fifty-five minutes in, as it was coming down, I was going like, "He's totally definitely dropping this." And I had seen his face; he's going like, oh, "I'm definitely going to drop this." <laughs> <laughs> and Bundy's been Bundy had been in the warm-ups. Ireland's best player. I read uh, the report of Samoa and Scotland and the amount of handling errors and I saw they played in Kobe and I was there thinking, oh man, like we're playing in Kobe. <laughs> this is gonna be this is gonna be an absolute sweatshop. We're gonna turn it over. I think the other feature about the Russia match, and we sort of talked about the way that the, the matches fell, because the comparisons with two thousand and seven in the media are everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. Like it's it's incredible what sort of mental impact that World Cup. Like it's 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 now four World Cups ago, well, it's three World Cups ago. Like, it's, it's mm-hmm. there's been two World Cups since then. And it it's still, and there was, like, World Cups before it, but they may, may, may as well not have been. Like, it's 2007 yeah. is the reference point for Irish World Cup stories. And you sort of go, this is not 2007. Like, I think the thing that hit me about it was that a lot of different guys got starts against Russia. Which is important because uh, I think one of the features of 2007 was how few guys actually played. And then by the time that the France match and the Argentina match came around, it was apparent that like no one who was in the sort of the wider squad like was going to get any sort of a shout. You were just uh, like you were just a tackle bag holder. And like for all the guys talk about, oh, there's nothing to do in the hotel. Like I mean, that's bollocks. You're a professional athlete, but if you're not getting picked and there's no prospect of you getting picked, you just lose interest. You go off tour. Like that. That's what happens on. Lions tours as well. As fellas just go, ah, fuck it, I'm in the dirt trackers. Now, some guys manage it. Like, Bessie just brought them all out in the beer. And I thought, like, the Lions match against Wellington was the most entertaining match. It's the most fun match to watch, the mm. last provincial match. And That's it was a really game. good rugby match. I yeah. thought Henley was very harsh to get. Anyway, um, I thought where I was going with that, I thought that Conway and Reese Ruddock played particularly well. And I think both of those guys have to start in the next match because I think that. What you want to do as a coach, and I, I go back to Lions Tours again, is um, I personally think that you want to pick the guys who are playing the best in, in that sort of situation. You want to reward form rather than sort of going, oh, I hope some guy will play himself into form. Now, I, you can sort of go, well, Gatlin doesn't do that. Gatlin just picks whoever he thinks is his first 15 before he goes, and he's been quite successful with it, but... Personally speaking, I don't think that how the many World Cups has Scotland won, and how many tours has Scotland won? I, I personally speaking, I don't, I don't think that the opposition that the Lions are playing on either tour were as good, maybe as as were made out. Um, where you look at Geach overturning the ninety-seven box with the team that like wasn't meant to be that good, that Lions tour, and he just like he picked guys who were in form and. That would be my bias. That would be what I would subscribe to. So then you're sort of you're still back in the same situation where you're going, like you're you're dropping Jacob Stockdale for that, or playing Conway at fullback. But like realistically, you're playing Conway in the wing. I think it, I think it's it's harshing him to play well, and then 
pick him out of position, which I would consider fullback to be at an international mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. And Reese Ruddock, you're sort of going, because Jack Conan is injured, I think CJ Standard has to play number eight. I don't think it's fair to put Ruddock at number eight where he doesn't play particularly well just because he played well in another match. So I think you have to pick him at either open side or blind side and just make your decision which way you're going to play. Well, I think he'll, I think now that O'Mahony's been picked in the first three games, uh, that Ruddock is going to start at blindside against Samoa. Uh, and I think it'll be Ruddock, Van der Fleer, Stander with O'Mahony on the bench. On the bench, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that rewards form and gives you pop off the bench. Yeah. And gives you more ballast. Ireland's best two games of 2019 came with Conan and Stander. Um in the back row for most of them. Because essentially Conan played most of the Scottish game there. And so having that extra carrying option in the back row allows, I think, did Stander win man the match against Scotland? Yep. Yeah. You know, it takes away half the double teams on Stander and allows him, allows him a little bit more freedom. Just, uh, just when he's running, he's not always getting double teamed. Uh, we've seen how effective that Van der Fleer can be wider out because he's easily the fastest man in the in the back five of the pack. And then, so Ruddock plays the standard role, so to speak. Standard plays the Conan role at eight. And I think that they'll do well against Samoa. Samoa is also going to be a huge hitting fest. And in a hidden match between Reese Ruddock and Peter Omani, Reese Ruddock wins that one. Uh, in terms of being a more better tackler, bigger hitter, better carrier. So I think that one sort of selects itself. The other big thing is James Ryan is back in the team uh, and he is, there's a huge drop off between Ryan and anyone else in the second row. You know, you, Hendo was very good against Scotland, not, not very good against Japan. Um, and, and that's Hendo's weakness is that you don't know how good he's going to be. Is he going to be his absolute best, which is really first rate top 10 lock in the world, or is he going to be not at his best in which he's, you know, he wouldn't get in like the English world cup squad, uh, when he's, when he's not playing his best time, like he would be fifth or sixth choice English lock. Yeah, um, and, and and the other one, the the start. Like I think you pick Earls. Like you look at the way Earls chase back. I think Earls playing well. Um, and you go on like that. That was pivotal. Yeah, and you go absolutely. Like, Stockdale, Stockdale hasn't been in the match. So, and you kind of go with Omani. Geez, like Omani actually plays his best matches in response to being dropped. He, he, I think he he produces these really big performances and Amani like is a big performance player like yeah. that, that's, that's the really plus his, point his, like he, in big matches he can produce which I think is a very attractive thing now is Stock like I don't know is Stock had a confidence card do you need to pick him but like I don't think you can justify picking him against Conway based on what we've seen yeah just getting back to Amani there briefly like it, the first 10 minutes of Amani's game against Russia was phenomenal he had like 3 or 4 great moments certainly 3 he had a great he had a great rip, just popped the ball out like a can opener. Then he had that one where he 
hopped over the top of the rook, slapped the uh, scrub half's arm down, and then scooped it out with the back of his hand. Um, that was one that Klein, I think, passed directly to somebody else. <laughs> but uh, it was it was a real like that was a that was a great like special move like Hayuk and stuff. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> I think uh, Killer played well against Japan and against uh, he did well against against uh, Mother Russia. So Killer's in the mix. Uh, and I don't think, like, I think Ringer's playing well. I think Earls is playing well. Ringer's has played all 80 minutes. Yeah. Game, though. I, 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 don't, I don't think that makes young. any difference. Yeah. Yeah. Who cares? Like, like, that's why they... You're there to play matches. You're there to play matches. Like, they haven't played. They just, they just trained their holes off, right? And then they played some warm-up games. Like, you're there to play matches. He's 24 or 25. Oh, uh, where is he, though? Rosie's playing really well. Yeah. But um, I, I don't think it matters what age you're. Like, I mean, if you're not playing outside, if you're not, if you're playing outside the front five, you just want to play everything. Yeah. Right. Like, Earl's only played one of the warm-ups. Like, he doesn't have, he didn't play the first, uh, he didn't play the first game either. Like, he's played two games. He's played three games in the last like, six months. Mm. So, Earl's is, uh, Earl's is playing great as well. I've, and then Robert's just scoring tries for fun. It's unbelievable. He's scoring another one. Yeah, he scored three tries in the last World Cup, three tries in this World Cup, no tries in between <laughs> for anybody. <laughs> um, so how do you think, how, how do we approach uh, beating Samoa in potentially uh, wet and windy conditions? Well, you've got to take away what they're not good at. You've got to dominate them at the line out, outscrum them. Uh, and... The tier one teams, Murray Kinsa said he doesn't like calling tier two teams, tier two teams. Hadn't really thought about it much before. I think it's just a good shorthand. Like tier one teams have better set pieces than tier two teams. So I think that's where you start. You start by trying to dominate the set pieces. Um, now that dominance mightn't come off in the first, you know, 25, 30 minutes, but it's like you have to work the body to get the opponent to drop his arms and then you can go for the head. Uh, that's that's how I'd approach it. Like it's going to be, the Samoans are going to be a hidden factory as they always are. So our discipline has got to be good. Uh, but I, our discipline has never been a problem under Joe Schmidt. And I think you kick it a lot. And Maybe you we should call out whoever's refereeing it just before they referee is again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know who the referee is. I'm trying to, I was, I was just trying to Google it, but uh, if you Google Samoa referee, you're just getting stories about Jacko Piper today. I think if you uh, you kick it and you, you give contestables and you take away the opportunity for Samoa to put in shots. Like, I mean, the energy for Samoa will be if they get big hits from tackles and if they get turnovers and they can put the ball, give themselves an opportunity to to counterattack from from turnover ball. Like that's mm. and you just grind them down into boring submission. Like kick your penalties. Um, but we're not going to kick any penalties we need to get a bonus point huge chance that that is crucial especially with the like the fact that the other guys will need know what result they need yeah. the following day well I think we will kick penalties I think the first thing you have to remember is we have to win this game you got to win yeah. first yeah, yeah I'd be like yep. winners and, and trust yourself that you'll get four tries like the Simone Simone World Cup is over mm-hmm. right it's like there's no way they're going through now, okay? And I, I think the Scotland results 
I was actually quite relieved that Scotland beat them. I was there going, our World Cup destiny is still completely within our hands and like Samoa have no interest. Whereas like, I think the worst thing for us would be if Samoa got a result against Scotland. Um, they got a bonus point against Scotland and if they had, like the, they were only seven points down on Japan going into the last like nine minutes or something mm-hmm. like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, uh, And at that stage, you're looking at, oh, Samoa are looking alive. And the idea that, oh, they have nothing to lose now. They have nothing to win either. Mm. The Samoans. Mm. Uh, and so it's, I'm ha- much happier that they are in this position rather than us playing them in a live game. And the second thing I'd say about Samoa is that they're not Fiji. They don't have the same counter-attacking inimical brilliance as the Fijians do. Uh, if you kick the ball and it's a bit too long, you're not giving the ball to Radrada or one of the or any number of mm. Fijian players. It's a, it's a they're a little they're bigger hitters, but they're a more prosaic team. So you expect to see uh, Ring Rose. You expect to see Sexton. You expect to see Murray. Yeah, well, I expect to see uh, Murray, Sexton, Henshaw, Ringrose. Uh, I'd expect Bundy to play at do you? 12. Yeah, I'd expect Bundy and Henshaw to be the midfield. Okay. I think. I'd expect to see Ringer on the bench. Um, I'd like to see Conway Earls and Carney. Uh, Sexton, Murray, um, Ruddock. The back row will be discussed, and then the front five that you'd expect. Very exciting. Yeah, it's a while off yet, though. You know, that's the other thing as well, is that they have time. They got their win against Russia. They got their bonus point. Uh, they have had probably now a couple of days off. Um, they can, they know that they, they know what they have to do. Uh, I'm, I'm not... I think this uh, this massive swing in sort of public opinion from being elated after the win against Scotland, who were very poor on the day, uh, to being disgusted and all the <laughs> huge um, scattershot attacks coming out against after the Japanese loss. I think the players, Rory Best in particular, is going, well, we're not as good as people think we are when we win. We're not as bad as people think we are when we lose. That old Tom Brady trope is is true. I think we'll perform pretty well against Samoa with a strong team. I think as well that um, Jack Cohn has been unlucky going home, but there hasn't been any, there hasn't been a, a, a huge catalogue of injuries. Where like you're, there's four or five blokes who are going to be unavailable for the next match. I also was trying to compare. I think you know talking about the comparisons with 2007. That every World Cup is 2007. Was that we were we were fortunate enough on the morning of the Scotland match to uh, get an audience among among others with um, where well, we were among others with uh, none other than the great Richie McCall. So Des Cal acted as MC and asked them, you know, threw him up a few sort of softball questions, but like good, you know, good, good questions, sort of interesting. Who's the best player you played against? Who's the toughest? Who's the dirtiest? Uh, what do you think he has And McCall's a really impressive speaker. Um, and one of the things he was saying about a World Cup is like you build during the World Cup. Like mm. there, there, there's nothing, you know, like, okay, so New Zealand beats South Africa the day before. He goes like, 
you you know you don't you don't get anything for that. Um, and he was giving the example of teams like France in 2011 or England in 2007 who hadn't played particularly well. But even if New Zealand didn't play particularly well in early matches, you know they, they still won. But like they weren't really concerned about that. They knew that you had to build up. And the reason I'm bringing that up is after 2007 is that in 2011 I remember going for dinner after because all the matches were on in the morning time so we mm-hmm. went for dinner in the evening time uh, Ireland had beaten Italy I think it was 36-6 yeah. and it looked absolutely razor sharp and like we were delighted like, we were sort of waiting for next week's quarter final and really really confident that this was a team in absolute fine fettle it doesn't matter a jot how good or bad you are in the first round, as long as you get through it. I think the big thing is getting through it and not getting injuries or suspensions. Um, so, like, do you, beat, do you beat Russia 35 nil or 17 nil? Does it matter? It doesn't. You get the bonus point. You don't get injured. Referee blows for half time. I brought up earlier on um, that I thought Angus Gardner uh, was a shithouse against us. And um, <clears throat> I made a, a very apt reference on Twitter to uh, Tofik Bakramov as a strong Bre- reference <laughs> strong reference strong obscure it. reference Soviet linesman of uh, Azerbaijani heritage who uh, was like yeah sure that's a fucking goal <laughs> definitely that's a goal in- I'm in England in Wembley where all the games are being played for our host nation that's definitely a goal even though it didn't go over the fucking line Jacko Papers 66 World Cup this is Jacko Papers uh, crooking in call um, which is transparently Absolutely absurd to be start calling uh, crooked ins. Um, the standard refereeing came in for criticism after the first weekend when the uh, Fijian open side was shouted in the face by Reese Hodge and nothing was done about it. Um, Steve Hansen's also come out and done a kind of like, oh, I, hope, I really hope this doesn't uh, ruin any big matches in the tournament. <laughs> Lavanini got deservedly sent off against England for, you know, shouldering. Owen Farrell in the face it kind of challenged Owen Farrell's you know dished out meted out a few times before but you know before World Cups when this is being refereed I made a comment to you uh, I think during the week that maybe they shouldn't have moved the goalpost before the World Cup just before the World Cup started maybe they should have refed the whole season like this before how do you think the referees are coping so far Uh, really poorly it's Rugby is an incredibly difficult, hard, difficult, hard game. It's a very difficult out. It's a very difficult game to referee. Uh, at the moment, probably more so than ever before. And, you know, we were talking about the when we watched John Quill try to fucking obliterate Owen Farrell for the Yanks against England, which was a real cheap shot. Um, worse than Lavanini's. Lavanini's was an attempted tackle. It was a very bad attempt. Quill went into <laughs> Quill went into murder him. Uh, Owen Farrell is as absolutely tough as teak. But one of those one of, one of these times, he just won't see it until it's happened, and he'll be concussed. Um, and uh, yeah, it's. I, I find like uh, there was this incident which I think we've all seen the clip off of the Italians spearing Dwayne Vermeulen and uh, Barnes was refereeing that one and you, you 
you can't watch Barnes is the best ref in the tournament. You can't watch that without red card in both of them, in my opinion, both the Italians. Uh, so Jacko Piper's calling a crooked, a crooked put in in this feed, you know, five meters from the Samoan line. Uh, like there's a, no, a check has said it. Stephen Jackson said these are coaches, and obviously they're very emotional and watching their their teams play and lose. The other one, the uh, Reese Patchell. Oh, who refereed that match? Oh, oh, Roman Pot. Um, <gasps> yes, yes. Literally, y- you don't know what is. Uh, Czech said, I, I don't know what's allowed and what's not allowed. And he's been taken to task by some people, but I sort of, I, I pretty much ag- agree with him. Um, it's, it's very difficult to see what's going to be, how the games, each game is going to be refereed. Well, there's something I noticed and I, it, it annoyed the shit out of me. I made a reference to it. I, I was one of, one of the days that I watched all the matches and it was the Fiji, um, Australia match and Fiji had, you know, they've been ground down by Australia who wisely stuck to the set piece in the mm-hmm. same way that you said we would beat Samoa. Uh, and then in the last 10 minutes, and I think I, I think I tweeted it before and it's sort of like since half time, it become very apparent that Reese Hodge should have been red carded. And I was like, this guy's just going to give like Fiji five penalties now. And he did. Oh yeah. yeah and, yeah. and it was just like, this is, it's so transparent. Every referee does it. And it's really, really annoying. It's like a total pyrrhic victory for them to earn a try after getting five penalties in a row. It happened to us at the end of the, the Japan game when Gardner said to Connor Murray, was Connor Murray still on the pitch at the end of the game? Yeah, he was. Yeah. And um, he, he said to him, I'm not going to give you a penalty if you pass in, if you pass into him. He's basically like, you're not going to be able to milk a penalty out of me for this guy lying on the wrong side of the rook and being in the way. Mm. I'm not going to give you one. And eventually, they did it three. Japan did it three times in a row, like three times in a row that particular time. And he eventually gave us a penalty on the halfway line, and like I think Carberry sliced into touch. But it was like, <clears throat> I'm not going to penalise them because uh, like this is the way I'm refereeing the game. As in, like, you have to beat me and the hosts. And it, it, it it's so frustrating. And like, like you said, you don't know what the hell is going to be penalized now. There was a moment in the, uh, I know there was, there's a litany of things that the South Africans complain about after their first pool game against New Zealand. But there was one moment where it's just like, someone's called offside in the back line. It's the only time the game. Mm. Everyone's offside in the back line the entire time. Yeah, I think that they've they've, they've 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 abandoned that law. They should just they should fucking abandon it for every every game. Yeah, I think that penalty count was was ten two uh, against South Africa in South Africa New Zealand. Mm. Um, and I remember when England played Wales in Cardiff in the Six Nations. Wales, I think, only conceded two penalties or three penalties or something like that. I remember looking at that game with, you know, as a neutral and going, Jesus, England are getting anything in this. Uh, and it's like home advantage does confer this huge advantage of the a massive crowd uh, calling, calling the game, more or less. But it's not just home advantage, this one. It's, you know, where the World Cup, there's only one home team, it's 20 teams playing. I, I think rugby's 
I think rugby has, uh, it's something that Steve Hansen has said before on two different occasions, that rugby's law book or rule book is too complicated and that there are too many laws. And it's a very, very difficult job to sort the wheat from the chaff. Um, but I think it's something that will needs to be looked at. Yeah, the, there's a few things that strike me. One is at um, at so many different levels, rugby is so political because it's a team game, because as a consequence of having to organise all these people, you sort of need committees, like you need volunteers, you need um, hierarchies. It, it's not just like a, a man on his bike type of thing. And I won't say none more so than referees, but I think a lot of people look at the at the matches and they look at the referees and they sort of think that the referees are there for the benefit of the match. And like, if you ever talk to referees and know them, like the referee is there for the benefit of the referee in his own head. Like the referees all want to get the final. And there are referees who sort of know, I'm not going to get the final. Mm. And you wonder how they make their decisions. New Zealanders. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, where there's there's a guy like Wayne Barnes and he's sort of going oh like I I think I'll I think I'll get it um, or like you know I think I'm a possibility if mm. England aren't in it um, but then I, there's there's that side of it the other thing like you were saying is that there's some there's some laws where they really pay attention to it and there are others like everybody sandbags and rooks oh, yeah. on the attacking side. And like, it doesn't get penalized. Fellas just flop off their feet. And it's kind of accepted that if there wasn't a contest, um, significantly the attacking team can just flop off and do it. And like, it's not penalized. Um, and then offside in the back line, you sort of go, ah, really? like it's, it's just not penalized. It's not picked up enough. Whereas there's a huge emphasis on the, uh, on the high shots because of the threat of concussion and more so the threat of a class action. Like that, that's really, that's really the concern of, you know, the powers that be. And they should referee the offside line because it spoils things. But I think the point, one of the points you were making before we started talking is like the, the scrum has just loads of intricacies and they shouldn't bother with half them. They yeah. should just be like, I, I don't know what you penalise scrums for, but really you should be led away with loads of scrums. Yeah. Like I think you should be allowed to, uh, to wheel a scrum I think you should be allowed to uh, not push straight. Um, and, and those are two things which, like as long as the scrum stays up, I think that's that's sort of fine with me. That's yeah, how I'd have it. I think, I think as long as the threat of neck injuries is taken away. So yeah. if, if, like if, if the scrum is going down and there's the threat of neck injuries... You know, that's a risk. And again, you go back to the sort of the class action and the sort of the, the stuff that's dangerous, stuff that's outside. So again, like we were talking beforehand just about Lavanini's penalty and, and you know, kind of old school players, pros, um, that formerly in rugby, a red card was, was a sin. Like it was something, you got penalized for something outside of the game and that like it was a kick or like it had to be bad to get red carded. Um, or like stamping on someone's head. Whereas now it's for, like you look at Lavanini's, my initial reaction to Lavanini's was, oh, that's harsh. Like I think I think Farrell's going down and I think he gets the initial hit on his chest or his shoulder. And then I was kind of thinking about it 
a little bit more and I was like yeah but like real politique if there's one thing that you're going to get done for in this World Cup well there's two things I mean like tip tackling but tip tackling's gone out of the game because 2011 Sam Warburton got red carded mm-hmm. and if there's one thing you're going to get done for now which guys do it's it's high shots or shots that are in and around the head because of the threat of a class action and you're looking at Lavanini going Hmm. And I saw one guy on Twitter going, I literally put money on Lavanini being sent off. And I was there <laughs> going, that's a pretty solid bet. And like, I watched Lavanini play in Cardiff and his tackles were low. They were dangerously low. Like, I mean, he was, he was, he was hitting guys like almost breaking their legs. And, but you're sort of appreciative of like the, uh, the brutality of it. Like Lavanini in a way, Brody Ritalik, James Ryan, Alamon Jones, Maro Otoje, like they are the template for a modern day second row. But in a lot of ways, if you're looking for like, you know, a world-class test second row, a timelessness, Thomas Lavanini is up there. Yeah, he fits the mold. Fits the mold. I remember reading this interview with, I think it was Mick McCarthy, but like it was, it was, it was a manager who went to a relegation threatened league one team late on of the season. And he was kind of, he was looking at who he had and he was looking at his center backs and neither of them had been booked. And he was there going, we're in a relegation battle and my centre-backs haven't been booked. <laughs> says, no wonder we're in a fucking relegation battle. Like These guys aren't going to be playing for the next, the last eight matches of the season, but certainly not both of them together. Like I want somebody who's going to kick and, and give it away. And like, Lavanini is that man. Like, the, yeah. it's, it's a risk worth taking if you're, if you're Roncero or whoever, not Roncero. Ledesma. Ledesma, I always call him Roncero. Um, and you're picking that team. But it didn't come as a huge surprise that he was also the one that got red carded. Thunder's in there. That'll knock the wind out of him. Someone needs to stop him. Speaking of that English match, they it was a very facile victory in the end. Uh, it was a really dull and uninteresting game, I thought, after particularly after the red card, but it wasn't particularly interesting before. You mentioned England earlier on as second favourites. I don't think they've played anyone good yet. And I don't think they're going to play anyone particularly good because they're playing France, who are... Totally erratic. Yeah, but <clears throat> but uh, they. I'm I'm really I'm really impressed with England. Uh, the thing that I'm most impressed with, I was listening to the Forty Twos podcast, the Murray Kinsler and Owen Toulon, uh, the guy who is appearing on it quite frequently now, is coach in Melbourne Rising. Uh, I think he's really good value. It's really interesting. Um, and they were talking about how England attack, uh, specifically how their big meters gainers, in <laughs> phrasing, there are their outside backs, that they're the ones clocking up a load of mileage and a lot of carries outside of Billy Vonopola. So he was talking about the way that they play with um, Farrell and Ford together at 10 and 12 and how to use Manitoulagi, Billy Vunapola. And then I was looking at, again, one of my favourite rugby teams of any code over the last 10 years have been the Queensland Maroons uh, <coughs> uh, in a state of origin, uh, who fitted a team with uh, Billy Slater, Cooper, uh, Cooper Cronk, Jonathan Thurston, Cameron Smith, none of whom are big guys. Cameron Smith's the biggest of them. He's about six foot, six foot one. 90 kilos the rest of them are under one meter 80 and under 90 kilos so that's this of like this is as physical 
physical an event as there is in rugby in, in either code of state of origin. So they have, they have these four brilliant ball players in a 13-man side, and they were able to string together eight state of origins against uh, New South Wales. And I think that's the next iteration of how rugby union is going to be played. I look at it at the moment, the two, the best uh, international side in the world, New Zealand, who play with, with two out halves, one out half and one at fullback. And then um, Saracen's the best club side in the world, in my opinion, uh, who play with with two out halves. Lozowski playing at outside centre, Farrell at out half, and then Alex Good playing at 15 is a, another distributor. So fitting more and more footballers in, guys who are good decision makers can kick and pass and... Now, they also have to be tough. Uh, like the guy I didn't mention uh, in that Queensland team because he came slightly earlier than Kronk and they never actually all fitted in the same team together as uh, Darren Lockyer. Um, again, not a big man. But I thought she did say Lockyer. No, Slater, Kronk, Thurston, and I can't remember. Oh, Smith. shit, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I was looking at it. I was looking at England's backline and I was thinking especially obviously they've got Ford and Farrell together two ball players and I was looking more at well they're kicking the ball quite a lot you know 27 kicks against Tonga which is more than I would expect and then 32 against Argentina playing against 14 men for more than an hour and I was saying well where's the extra kick come from and it's Elliot Daly at fullback who's you know mostly for England and the lines he played wing uh, mostly up until 2018 for for England when he switched to uh, fullback. And then for the Wasps, he played a lot of positions, but mostly outside centre. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing Elliot Daly's first couple of games, November 2018. And he was he was out of position. and all, Well, he just wasn't good under the high ball. And there was a lot of calls for, oh, it's, not, it's just not working, let's go back to Mike Brown. But obviously Eddie Jones is looking at this fella and going, He's got pace, he can kick, he can pass. And I was looking at the, the numbers of passes those players are throwing uh, in the game. It's like Farrell against Argentina, 26 passes as a 12. Sorry, 17 passes, 4 to 26. Uh, Farrell had 17 and Elliot Daly had 15 passes. The thing, the thing as well, when I, was I looking at the right things? Yeah, is so that Farrell touched the ball 32 times. So Ben Youngs gets the most. He's scrum half, 71. Ford is 40. Farrell's 32. Elliot Daly's 35. So Elliot Daly touches the ball more than Owen Farrell. Yeah. Um, and you sort of think with England that you want Farrell to be on the ball more than anybody else by your scrum half who has to give it to him. But it's actually Daly. Yeah. Who's, who's ahead of him, which is... Well, it took me by surprise. Yeah, and even against Tonga, when he didn't get, when Farrell got the ball more times than him, Daly had like nine passes, nine runs, and two kicks. Um, like he's, he passes the ball an awful lot. He's able to, he's he can distribute because he's a center. Yeah, he's a flyer, and he's got a monster boot. So none of those guys, like Ford, is actively slight. Uh, Daly's not a big man. Farrell's big, but in terms of a number twelve, like he's not—he's not a 
a huge man. He's well, not, and he's and he's not a flyer. Like he's he's no. quick at the rugby ball and is it, he's quick at the rugby ball because he uses two hands on the ball. He picks great lines, and as he uses two hands on the ball, like his his passing is always a threat. So it'll make the defense stand off and think about what he's going to do. But I think if you were to put him in a foot race over 40, 50, 60 meters, uh, he'd be one of the slowest 12s in the world. one of the slowest 12s, yeah. So what's the significance then of the fullback getting their hands on the ball so much and they're being... Well, it means that they've got a lot of passers. They've got great pace uh, with Anthony Watson or Jack Knoll or Johnny May on the wing. They've got a 13 who is a huge threat running straight lines in Manu Tuolagi. So they have all of these different types of lead. They've got an absolute Bosch King and Tuolagi. They've got great pace. And then they've got guys who can make decisions around them, decide who gets the ball at a very late stage, throw whatever pass is required, and they've got a number of them. Well, I, I think Jack, I think Watson and May are actually quite similar, but I think Jack Noel is different as a mm. winger. So he gives you a wrinkle. So you, you can pick two flyers with Watson and May, or you can pick Jack Noel, who's very good in the air, who's very tough, who's very good at coming in a first receiver, and he's, he's, he's low to the ground, and he's jinky, and he'll, he'll get you over the gain line. Um... Correct me if I'm wrong, because we sort of discussed about this in a slightly different way, but didn't Eddie Jones refer to Jack Nolas' open side? Yeah, he did, yeah. In, in the Six Nations. And I think that, that was one of the things we were discussing, um, I think, travelling, was that uh, rugby would develop to a situation where you just picked your your best athletes. Like, you, you'd pick a guy at six who was a super athlete, like a guy who was six foot five or six foot six who could really... And there's a guy, like, who's the guy playing for seven's team? I can't remember his name. Um, at the moment. But, like, a guy coming, not necessarily from sevens, but, like, a guy capable of playing sevens who can run, who can pass, and you would make... You could play him... You can play him wider out. Brody Retallick is is an example of a guy who could who can play like top class tight five, but who can also run, is also fit enough, and has got the hand and ability to be able to distribute in the middle of the pitch and throw a dummy and yeah. make something from it. So like it's like the future's arrived and it, it looks like Brody Retallick, but that's that's gonna be more and more I think the way the, the the game comes. So like it also in that Queensland team, like you had uh Greg Inglis. Greg Inglis. Yeah. You just had a bloke who was enormous and who could run. Yeah. Well, it's funny you should mention <clears throat> uh, the Northern Code because uh, one of the uh, one of the laws that's being trialed in, I think it's Australian yeah, Shoot Shield, or yeah. is the basically the forty twenty where yeah. you can uh, the attacking team can kick the ball dead via a bounce in the opposition's twenty two, and they'll receive an attacking line out, which would force more uh, wingers to drop back and yeah. cover the backfield, thus leaving more space in, in, in defense, but also encouraging having kickers everywhere, having footballers everywhere yeah. on your team, rather than speedsters and Bosch merchants or whatever combination or arrangement of those you want to have. Well, I think that there's, you see, my point is that there's, there's going to be, there's a, you're always going to have. I'm uh, certain that law is going to come in, by the way, that's, that's yeah. why I bring it up. Yeah. You're, you're, like it's, you need to have a threat. You need to have guys like uh, Tulin talked about it. How straight that Farrell and Ford run when they have the ball, and how well they disguise their passes, and that they stay over the ball. He, he describes it that their their lines of running are really disciplined, which I think is very. Um, it's 
you know, it's a, a basic in inverted commas, which is one thing which isn't a basic, which is nonetheless a difficult thing to do. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm really interested by that because I, um, I was saying it in the WhatsApp group today about, uh, I was rereading a report card that I, I wrote from, from 2015. It was the, um, it was, so after the, after the last World Cup, I, I wrote eight articles, or we sort of, we wrote eight articles and, you know, different sort of front row, second row, all that sort of stuff. And then wrote Run on Irish Rugby, the, the, the last one, the penultimate one on coaching. And I quoted Matt Williams, who said, oh, you know, Ireland brought a knife to a gunfight. The game has evolved. And Matt Williams is still writing the same article four years later, except that he's saying that, oh, like, you know, Ireland beach New Zealand in 2018, but like the game has evolved since then. You're going like, hang on the fuck. Like if the game has evolved, if the game had evolved in 2015 and you're still saying it's evolved, but you're referencing 2018, like, your articles haven't evolved. That's the thing that hasn't evolved. Like, <laughs> pick the point that's evolved. So you look at, go back to Matt Tamua coming on against Wales, and you're going, he ran straight. Like that. That was the that was the big thing. And you're going like that. That's the most fundamental thing in rugby. And then you look at, you know, I think Jamie Heaslip was the guy that comes to mind the most in Irish. And you're sort of going like, what's he good at? And you're going, he's good at everything. He's not particularly brilliant at anything, but he, he can he can do it across the board in the back row. And that's that's what we're missing is a guy who can carry, pass, tackle, break down, jump play 80 minutes, jump. jump I think running straight. Line out options. But like yeah. the, my, my thing is, so really we were chatting about is like, you know, how, how has the game evolved? How has it changed? And I think the the Bodie, Bodie Barrett playing at fullback is the thing that's changed for me the most. Like I think the breakdown changes the way it's refereed. I think the rest of the stuff, like the, the rugby league defense, the rugby league offense, like the unders overs, out the back stuff, that's been around for a while. It's been around for certainly more than this World Cup cycle. I think the rush defense has been around for more than this World Cup cycle. Um, teams depending like to contest the backfield or to, to fill the midfield, that's been around. Like none of those are evolutions. Like that 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 stuff has all been around for at least four years and it was mature four years ago. I think what you're talking about is wanting guys who can do more than you know, who've who've a rounded skill set in different positions. Also decision makers though. And decision makers is is what we're seeing in this World Cup. So what Eddie Jones has gone and what Steve Hansen has done by, even when Mackenzie was injured, he was just like, I want to do this. So I'm going to put the best out half in the world of fullback. Yeah, Yeah. like he could have just picked Ben Smith at 15. Yeah. You know, and he's, and Ben Smith can pass. Like, don't get me wrong. You know, Ben Smith's a really well-rounded player. But uh, he was, he wanted two decision makers. Um, in his in his back and what is his half his his out half and his his uh, another another decision maker in the back. When I say a decision maker, I mean a first class out half, like the way that Farrell and Ford are both first class out halves. And he, he, even like when you talk about decision makers, and we talked about the All Blacks, like when Graham Henry was coaching them eight years ago, like what they do so well is that they counter attack. Like if you look at New Zealand play now, they counter attack. Aaron Smith gets the ball as quick as he can. Right, so Aaron Smith, it's like we were talking about this discussion about Aaron Smith and TJ Paranar, and you're like, oh, yeah, I think TJ Paranar. Yeah. And I'm just like, are you joking me? New Zealand? No. <laughs> New Zealand. <laughs> the way New Zealand will always play, <laughs> the, way, like, the way New Zealand will select their team, the way they play at the moment is they'll always pick Aaron Smith mm. as their first choice because he's so he's got such a good read of the game. He's so fit. 
and he's got such a good pass to like New Zealand turn it over and as soon as they have their mitts in it, they fire it back. Yeah. And like two or three yards and they fire it back and they know that Smith is going to be there and Smith throws like a 20-yard bomb to Bodie and it's always Bodie. That, yeah, is, the way, Bodie, that yeah. is the way New Zealand play. Like it's just, the shout is like, you know, I'd say I'd say other blokes in the team are shouting in at Smith going like, he's 20 yards left, he's 20 yards right. He's like, and like Smith finds him in full flight. There isn't a better sight in the game than Bodie Barrett in yeah, full flight. No, it's, it's magic. Except if he's playing against you. But like, he's, man, he's such a good runner. And like fullback was where he played Although for that New Zealand 20s him, team. Him burning everybody from seven yards out and then dropping the ball five metres from the line is also pretty enjoyable <laughs> to watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny, I watched uh, the, the night before the uh, Ireland-Scotland game. I was really getting into the mood and I uh, watched a lot of videos of Ireland winning stuff and I watched uh, Eric Elwood um, taking a drop goal against England in 1993. Uh, I also watched a long video about um, uh, Aaron Smith's passing, which was absolutely fascinating. And I'm going to tweet it from Eric Hange later on. Oh, good man. But also, basically, about how quickly he gets to breakdowns and not coming into the breakdown from behind it, just coming straight in at the line of it. And if you don't know what's behind you, you listen to what's behind you and you pass it there anyway. And I was just like, and then also how he picks the ball off the ground is, is fascinating. Let me go back to the point of two playmakers. We, everyone, was saying this about you know a couple of years ago New Zealand have definitely nailed their colours to the mask by, by Mackenzie and then by moving in moving Bowden Barra back to 15 Ireland could have done this if they'd put Joey Carberry if they'd accepted Joey Carberry playing a 15 for Leinster instead of shipping him down to Munster to play 10 and getting injured well no, no you see you have to take into account uh, Paddy Jackson yeah. You can't avoid that, and that's to do with this tournament as well. Paddy Jackson played Ireland's last game in that stadium. He played the two tests against Japan in 2017. He was in the 2015 Rugby World Cup squad. So Jack Carty is is there as um, as, as Ireland's third choice out half. He's played the most minutes of any of our out halves thus far. Uh, when you consider that we played our two nominally t- two toughest matches, that's quite striking uh, and the, the three out halves that went to 2015 were Madigan, Sex and Jackson um, so Jackson's last start for Ireland yeah last match for Ireland yeah was so against you, uh, Japan and Tokyo you can't like Joey Carberry may have gone if it, if it hadn't been for the Paddy Jackson situation uh, because if you if you remember the, the I, I remember reading the ultimatum was Ulster ha- or Leinster have to send either Ross Burner or Joey Carberry to Ulster. That was what I read at the time. I'm not sure how true that was. Um, and then neither wanted to go. And then Munster came in and offered Carberry because at that stage it's like, well, who are the out halves playing in Ireland? Mm. And that's why why Carberry moved down to to Munster. That's my memory mm. of it. I don't think that's incorrect. Uh, and there's nothing you can do about Carberry being injured. Injuries happen. But I do take your point about Carberry as a potential second distributor in the same back line, but you have to remember the context of why that move happened in the first place. The other possibility for that role is Ian Madigan, who I always thought with absolutely never seen him there. I always thought Madigan could have been a good second centre. Um, but you know so it goes but 
you could have made a decision that I'm going to play Madigan a fullback. Um, you know, he can he can do. He's he's maybe not really tall enough to mm-hmm. be top quality fullback, but you know, he's 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 brave. He can catch the ball. He's a good tackler, and he gives you that second. He gives that second option, and he, you have him as a place kicking option. Um, probably the best place. Probably the best Irish place kicker. Mm-hmm. So is, there, is there anyone better than him? Carby's been very good of late. But, yeah, uh, that's true. But Madigan yeah. won back to back. Golden boots. Golden he? boots. Yeah. So that, that's another option, but that that wasn't pursued either. Um, and that that happened. on news before is watch. You know how much were they were they willing to spend? And it's 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 a big leap because it's it's. I'm saying I'm bringing up news before now. I don't think it's fair to say it's one bloke because. You'd have to make a decision as the coach to pick him there, like Leinster's coach. As I say, as the coach, like Leinster's coach, would have to decide to pick him there, and then well, really paid- not pick, and then not pick Rob Kearney. Yeah, right. So, I mean, they are prepared to do that. I say they like Cullen picks the team. I think Lancaster was pushing the the shape. They're prepared Leinster to pick Carberry ahead of um, <coughs> Kearney against Wasps, mm-hmm. like in a big match. Um, then you sort of go, well, that's one hurdle. Does Joe Schmidt want to do that? And Joe Schmidt has shown absolutely no interest in dropping Rob Kearney in his entire time picking the team. Mm. Let's wrap it up. We're going to talk a little bit about, um, <clears throat> as we go into the last round of pool games, I think most of the pools seem fairly decided except for pool A. But let's talk about how we see the probable quarterfinals playing out I see it as England, Australia. I see it as Ireland, New Zealand. I see it as Japan, South Africa. And I see it as uh, Wales versus France. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm saying, <laughs> I said earlier on, England haven't played anyone good. I think the first good team they're going to play is Australia. Do you think they have the wherewithal to get around them, given how they've oh, shown that they can beat the All Blacks? Yeah, I think, I think that uh, England will do uh, well against Australia. I uh, I would be pretty sure that they'll beat them. I think it's Pickham. I think the Aussie scrum is much better than previous iterations of the Aussie scrum. Um, I think that Pocock hasn't played particularly well so far, but is likely to improve. Um, which gives Australia a big breakdown threat. And I think the Aussies can score tries um, against the fact that England are England are good. I, th- I I I would differ. I thought England Argentina was a very interesting match until Lavanini got sent off, and then it was just inevitable. It was it was poor. Yeah, that's me the most interesting thing to come out of it is how injured is Billy Vunapala. Oh, I agree. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think Wales versus France is the most predictable of the quarterfinals. There is zero chance of France winning that. Might as well win that. Particularly if they've lost England. Now, if France have just gone and Franced England in the last game of the pools, say just for some reason, it's all different. But if they've lost England, having gotten out of their group and avoided the ignominy of going out of their group, there's no way they'd beat Wales. Wales will win that. Yeah, Wales should win that. Um, France were... How, how many points were France up at home? in the Six Nations this year at halftime and then like shot themselves in the foot 10 times as many yeah. times as possible Wales should win it um, the reason I say it's more predictable is because I think the two other ones I predicted Japan and South Africa um, there's just 
it's just that it's happened before and Japan has a tidal wave of emotion behind them. I think they're going to beat Scotland. Sorry, that's what it leads into that. And Ireland, uh, no one will be giving us a chance and we're a New Zealand's bogey team. New Zealand will beat us, South Africa will beat Japan. Yeah. New Zealand will beat us by 20 points. No, I don't think so. No, I think, I think like, they'll... I, I, I wrote about it, again, going back to my... I think in a high eight, scoring, like a 45-25 kind of thing. No, I think I think that we'll go out in the quarterfinals again. I think we'll go out to New Zealand, but I think we we'll go out with a heroic battle. And I think people have to get their heads around, shit, it was the quarterfinals again, but it was the sort of Ireland performance that everyone wanted to see. Yeah, I actually agree with that. I, I think that there's a good performance in this team. Oh, yeah. You fucking hope so. <laughs> <laughs>
shine. 